0: Hi everybody, my name's Ed, I'm an alcoholic. By the grace of God, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and sponsorship, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or a mood-altering chemical since January 5th of 1971, and for that I'm extremely grateful. <laughs> I want to thank the committee for inviting me. Those of you uh, looking for Wayne B, know he didn't get taller and prettier. He couldn't make it tonight, uh, and when they found out he couldn't make it, they said, you know, you're going to have to have a big speaker to fill his shoes. Well, <laughs> Don't know how good to talk, but I'm a big speaker. so I. <laughs> and I want to thank the committee for inviting me. Uh, it's just been a joy, Mark, for picking me up in that wonderful basket. And I'll tell you, I get to speak uh, pretty often anymore, but I've never had anybody arrange for President Bush to meet me at the airport. That was... <laughs> No, oh, that was all right. I like that. <laughs> Glad he got out of my way so I could get here. <laughs> you know, nobody's asked me. I can't believe it. I've been here uh, all afternoon, and nobody's asked me two questions. And it's always by the same size person, too. First question is, oh, how tall are you? And I say, 6'10"? They say, ah, you play basketball? (laughs) I say, no, how tall are you? And they say, five, six. I say, do you play miniature golf? (laughs) Seems fair to me. They made up the rules. And And I used to think I had to do things to get attention when I was drinking, you know. Uh Put me in the lineup. It was him, officer, you know. (laughs) Wasn't really a no-brainer. But I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love God, and I love being sober, and I don't apologize for any of the three anymore. For a number of years in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had to kind of tiptoe around those because God knows what you'd think of me if I really put my faith on the line. What would you think of me then? But I love God. I love Alcoholics Anonymous, and I really love you. The most amazing thing I can tell you is I don't want a thing from you. I always wanted something from somebody. And you've changed my heart and you've changed my mind. You've changed me into the person I always hoped I could be but never dreamed I could be. And I thank you for that. I come from a very elite group of people called white trash. And uh, we worked hard to maintain our reputation, you know. When you got a position in society, there's certain things that are expected in you you got to go to jail a lot and have cars parked in your yard, you know, certain things. Wear hand-me-downs, you got to do all those. Oh, it's a burden, but somebody's got to do it. And from my earliest memory, I didn't like anything I saw. Isn't that funny? Nothing. I don't know why, but nothing. And I started doing something then that uh, took me years sober to break. You see, I'm the type of person that can walk into a room of this many people and all of you could say, Ed, we love you. You're the best. And just one could go, jerk. Why are you calling me a jerk, man? To the point that the rest of you didn't even exist. Now, that's sick. And I was very sick because I could always see the ones in my life, the negatives, for some reason, long before I drank, I could pick them out in a minute, and I never knew you were here ever. I remember my mom taking me to church boy that 's a drag. just was you know i don 't know if you know any ministers, but they all have thin blue lips and talk like this. <laughs> shake their fingers say you 're going to burn in hell, young man that 's what you 're going to do you 're going to burn in and he always used to pick me out. <laughs> How do you know I was there that Sunday? Yeah. You're going to burn in hell, young man. And then he'd say stupid stuff like pray. I thought, yeah, like I'm going to tell him where I'm at now, too, you know. (laughs) I may be young, but I ain't dumb, you know. But I go to church, and Mom just loved this place. Uh, You know, I was the youngest of seven kids, and uh, Dad was one of the hardest-working men I've ever known in my life. When I was 16 and he was 60, he outworked me. I couldn't keep up with him. Hard-working man, a hard drinker too, you know. And Mom would drag us seven little children to to church, and I'd go in there and people, especially this one guy that sat up front, and he always looked happier in the bar the night before, and that lady seemed a lot be a lot more entertaining than the one he was with now. I just thought. Man, hypocrisy. I could pick that up in a minute. I didn't want anything to do with that. I couldn't wait to get out of church. Because they used to tell me stuff like, God is responsible for everything. God is responsible for everything. So that means in the middle of the night when I go to the refrigerator to open, and turn on the light and a million cockroaches run everywhere as I'm trying to get a drink of water. God is responsible for everything. So one more time when I go and there's no food in the refrigerator or they're hauling dad off to jail or that there's that horrific fight and screaming and mom sobbing god is responsible for everything or one more loved one gets ripped out of my life hit by a car murdered killed and somebody says god is responsible for everything or else the real good one god must have wanted to keep that god because I got to believe in real early on, if God's responsible for everything, he doesn't like me much. So I won't like him. So I turned my back on that real early on. I got an attitude about it. I got, uh, I got angry about it. I really didn't want to hear that stuff. I went to my first AA meeting when I was 10 years old. I've got a brother sober 44 years. We don't even let people smoke around him. He's so dry, you know. <laughs> fire hazard, fire hazard, you know. And, uh, but he took me to an A&A meeting, you know, and uh, walked in there, and I remember some old guy up there about 30, you know. Obviously a burnout. My name's Fred, and I'm an alcoholic. I thought, good for you, Fred, you know. If <laughs> I ever get old and burn out, I'll be here too. <laughs> I didn't know I was a prophet at that point, but... Uh... <laughs> and the reason I share that story is that there's somebody here tonight who has somebody that they really love that's out there doing it, and you wish they were here. And my heart breaks for you. But I need to tell you, even though he introduced me to AA and I hung around quite a bit, I didn't go out there and think, gee, maybe what I need is 12 golden steps to walk up and a relationship with God to mend my ways. <laughs> I had troubles. <laughs> I had real problems. At 13, 14, I already had memories and what might have been's and if only's. Iowa Highway Patrol picked me up at 13 years old with the possession of a sawed-off shotgun. And it wasn't to be nice to anybody. It was so you weren't going to hurt me anymore. You know, it's amazing now when these kids uh, take guns to school and people get panicked. (laughs) They've been doing it for years. It's just in your neighborhood now. Pay attention. It ain't going to go away soon. But I didn't want anybody to hurt me anymore. I had it. And I started telling a lie then that alcohol helped me believe with every fiber of my being. And it was simply... I don't care. You're going to die before you're 21. I don't care. You're going to spend the rest of your life in prison, just like your brother. I don't care. Do you know what you're doing to your mother? I don't care. Boy, was that a lie. One of the biggest things in my inventory was the look in my mother's eye one my ex-wife's face, that little child's face that's two years old. Of course, they can't figure it out. My drinking doesn't affect anybody. But well, one day when I walk in the house and I act like I'm drunk, he runs around the corner happy to see me and then sees me acting like I'm drunk and he hangs his little head and he goes back into his room. And you know what I said at the meeting that night? My drinking doesn't affect anybody but me. What a lie. I just didn't know. January 5th of 1971 I got sober. I really didn't mean to. Uh, it was not in my Palm Pilot or my day planner. It just wasn't there. Uh, I was in an accident like I'd been many times in my life, and it was uh, uh, 18 below zero, and I was laying in the middle of the street pretending like I was knocked out. I'm not quite sure why, but it seemed like the thing to do at the time.
1: <laughs>
0: I had my eyes closed, and I can remember the police running up to me. and They were saying things like, that's mute him, don't touch him, he's the scum of the earth, don't even cover that SOB up. Car's probably hot. Who cares? And I agreed. You see, I'm a cop fighter. And I had no more fight. I agreed. For some reason that night, I knew it wasn't about what you'd done to me or the life I'd lived. It's what I'm doing to me and the way I think and the way I live that put me in that position. And I remember they rolled me into the hospital and some nurse came up to me and said, Ed, do you want me to call AA? And I went, (coughs) might as well. I want to know why you newer people can't be sincere like we were in the old days. And the next day, some guy came up named Hap. (laughs) Try that, being hung over with a brain concussion, sick to your stomach, and some AA member named Happy comes to see (laughs) you. And I remember Hap. And he said, we don't drink and we don't use one day at a time. And for some reason, I got honest. I don't know why that particular day, because I couldn't be honest. I didn't know how to be honest. I would lie when the truth had served me better, but for some reason that day, I said, I can't make it a whole day without something, and he said, well, all you have to do is try, and that's the only thing consistently I've done from that day to this, sometimes real well, sometimes not too hot, but I've continued to try one day at a time, and that's my sobriety date uninterrupted, and I started going to meetings, and I started listening to people, because I knew my best judgment got me where I was. Uh, I was gifted with the understanding that I had to keep busy. I knew I couldn't take time to think. My first rule, when I first got sober, if I thought it was a good idea, I wouldn't do it. (laughs) If you're new, that's good information, I'm telling you. Especially if you really think it's a good idea. Don't do it at all. We'll be talking about sponsorship a little later. And I remember I was, I was going to meetings and they said, get honest. And I thought, uh, okay, I'll cut down on the stealing. I'll just do enough to make ends meet, you know. <laughs> well, you've got to make a living. You know? And they said, no, no, you've got to quit. And I thought, who? And then they talked about that self-honesty. And man, that, that's been a journey. A good one, but a difficult one at times. I remember the time I asked God to show me how my sharp tongue affects people. Careful what you pray for. Because he wouldn't do it if he wouldn't show me as I was doing it. He'd show me when I was done. And I'd make my cute little one-liner and cut them off at their knees, and I'd be walking away, and all of a sudden I'd see that look in their eye and that sadness and that pain and tears would just roll down my Man, I don't want to do that. You see, if you stick around, if you're blessed like I'm blessed, people are going to love you enough to tell you the truth, whether you want to hear it or not. I remember people walking up to me saying, Ed, you smell bad, buddy. you got to go take a shower. Nobody ever cared that much for me, before. and I was amazed that you did. And nobody could get near me. I wouldn't let anybody near me when I was first sober. There were no treatment centers around then, and uh, I'm pretty grateful for that. But, or uh, well, I'd still be working on my issues. <laughs> but <I laughs> people come to talk to me now and say, "I have several issues." I always say, "Do you have any Playboy?" I don't really know that. But I remember I was just terrified. And there was a little guy named Harry Stevens. He passed away sober some years ago. And Harry had a job. He was a coffee pourer at the meeting. And Harry would go around and pour coffee. And I'm just a bundle of nerves ready to explode at any given second. And Harry would come up behind me, which you never do. <laughs> But Harry could. He'd come up behind me, and he'd put his hand right here on my shoulder. Now, I don't know why, but everything was okay first, and I just loved it. Nobody had touched me, nor would I let anybody touch me. And he'd pour my coffee, and then he'd go. And I'd drink my coffee just as fast as I could. So Harry'd come by and pour me another cup of coffee. The thing I regret about that is I never told Harry, Harry, you saved my life. What we do is so important. What we say is so important. It may be a cute little remark, but it may run somebody out the door, too. There was a guy in Santa Monica named Jimmy R. Jimmy Ryan. He's passed away. And Jimmy was from Texas. He talked like this and rubbed his hands. You remember him, Keith? He was just a rap fire talker. Boy, he just talked, 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 talked. He said, you know, one time some psychologist told me why I rubbed my hands like this and I smacked that so-and-so right in the mouth. <laughs> And he was, he was just a fireball. And, uh, and I don't know if Jimmy did this to everybody, and it's really not important. But I used to be plagued by severe depressions, those deep, dark ones. I don't have them anymore as the result of the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and haven't had them for a number of years. But then I was working on that, you know, and I'd walk into that club some days, and I'd be in that real black spot. If you know depression, you know just what I'm talking about. And for some reason, Jimmy would be there. And I'd walk by Jim, and I'd say, Jim, how are you? And it was like the world stopped. And Jimmy would stop, and he'd look me right in the eye. And he'd say, I'm much better for seeing you today, my friend. I'm much better for seeing you. And he saved my life. It's important what we do. Everything that we do. Everything that we do. I uh, started going to meetings, and I remember there was a minister in the group, and he had thin blue lips, talked like this. (laughs) Shook his finger a lot, you know. And he said, Ed, why don't you come back to church? And at about six months sober, you get honesty. At about eight months, you get a little tact to go with it. I'd wait for the tact if I were you, just a suggestion. And he said, Ed, why don't you come back to church? And I said, I'll tell you why I don't come back to church. It's full of thieves, hypocrites, and liars. And I felt good. And he said, well, why don't you come? One more won't hurt. I didn't talk to him for a long time, I'll tell you. (laughs) If you're new, if they say something really makes you mad, (laughs) it's the truth. (laughs) At least that's my story. And I remember uh, they said that they brought up this God deal. Oh, man, I just really didn't want to hear that. I'd turn over tables on you. You know, you bring up that Jesus wants me for a sunbeam, you'll get your lights out. You know, that's just, I don't want to hear any of that. I was so... In our book, it talks about being violently anti-religious, and I understand that very much. But what they said to me is that you have to have a God, and it can be of your very own. And I thought, you mean I can make up my own? And they said, yeah. I said, okay, thought about it. Thought, my God's going to be kind and loving and forgiving. <laughs> How do you like them apples? <laughs> Didn't seem to bother them. And uh, <laughs> I thought I was original, just like everything else in my life. And so I started uh, trying to find that God, but I made a mistake that I want to share with you that I see people make. I started professing a faith I didn't have. You see, I'd look into the eyes of old-timers, and when they talked about God, I knew they were telling the truth. They weren't pulling any punches. I couldn't quite figure out their angle, but I knew they were telling the truth. So I started parroting what I heard them say. Oh, God's in His heaven, all's right with the world. Easy does it, live and let live. Oh, pray about it. And it all sounded good. January 19th of 1972, i just celebrated a year sober, and my father asked me to come have dinner at the house. Now, that may not be unusual for you, but when my dad asked me to come to the house, I'm in trouble. But I'd been a year sober now. And I'd ha- been hanging around these people that told me to bring a new attitude to old situations. So I suited up, and I showed up, and I went to that house and. Halfway through dinner, Dad said, "Boy," and I thought, "Here it comes." Said, so "Just want to tell you I'm proud of you." And if you had ever tried to convince me that I wanted that old fool's approval, I would have argued for days. But the moment he gave it, it was one of the greater gifts I've ever had, and it was one of the best days I'd ever had now Alcoholics Anonymous. And I went to that meeting, and we had a good meeting. And I went to my sister-in-law's house afterwards. And I got a call from my mother who was crying and hysterical and said, Ed, come home quick. Uh, I don't know what's happening. Dad went across the street and now they're carrying bodies out of there. And I came home and it was one of those ice storm nights, you know, where there's a quarter inch on everything. And I kept thinking, well, you know, I, I got God now. Nothing bad can happen. Went up to that uh, bar that I used to spend a lot of years drinking in. I drank in there from the time I was 11 years old. And there were more police than I've ever seen in my life. And you know, it's funny, in that year I'd been sober, they'd shaped up pretty good. (laughs) If you're new, if you don't swing at them, they won't lock you up, usually. Man, I wish I'd figured that out a few years before. But I'd worked in the courts that year to help people who had drinking problems. Wasn't paid for it, it was a volunteer thing. They knew I was sober, and I walked in, and there was an officer there. He said, Ed, what are you doing here? And I said, my dad was here. He said, oh, God, Ed. And I said, why, what happened? He said... I don't know. All we know is somebody came in and opened fire and shot it. And I looked down the bar and I saw a pool of blood with my father's glasses all smashed up. And I kind of knew. I didn't want to know. But I knew. And they said, uh, he said to me, they've taken all the bodies up to the hospital. So I went up to the hospital. And I walked in there and there was a lieutenant up there who hadn't forgotten my past. And he said, what are you doing here? And I said My dad was in the chamber. He said he wasn't in there. I've identified everybody. Now you get out of here and don't cause any trouble. We'll have in not nice words told me he'd have me arrested too. And then a miracle happened. I said, okay. And I left. That's not my nature. You change my nature. I went and I called the one cop that for the last five years I was out there, my drinking and using, tried to put me away. But he's the one guy too on that force that really knew I was sober. And I said, my dad was in there, and he said, oh, my God, Ed, hold on. And we talked back and forth. He said, the only thing we can come up with is they either took him as hostage or he got shot and wandered outside somewhere, so we'll form a search party and walk the streets. And for years, I'd hoped you wouldn't know that feeling. And then September 11th came along, and you all got to know that feeling. And it's a horrible feeling. It's a ghastly feeling. It's a combination of all the emotions I've ever known in my life, all at one time feeling. And you don't want to be looking in the trash can for your dad, but you know you got to, because you might just be there. And we searched the streets all night. At 8 o'clock the next morning, that officer called me up and said, Well, Ed, you want to come up? Anybody could have made a mistake. You need to identify your dad's body. And I went up to the hospital, and I walked into that morgue, and I saw my father there with that bullet hole in his face, and it just got colder. And I reached for that faith I'd been professing. And all I had was other people's work. And the thought crossed my mind of that thin blue-lipped pastor told me, you know, your family will pay for the things you do, too. And I was just angry and hurt and disillusioned. And I've had reason in the last few years to go over that time uh, many, many times. And one of the things I realized is, you know, from the moment it happened, there was always an AA member right here. Not right here right here that if I ever needed they'd just coincidentally be at the police station when I had to go out be outside my house when I'm leaving be at the funeral home by the hundreds and I had a knot in my gut that just wouldn't quit but I never thought of drinking this program works thought of a lot of other things thought about homicide thought about a lot of things but I didn't drink that's amazing Mm -hmm. You know, I think too often we forget. Everybody says, oh, I'm waiting for the burning bush. If this isn't a burning bush, all of us sitting here sober, then what is? I don't know about you, but I could not get rid of the desire to drink, no matter what, and it's, and that day it was gone. And I remember the funeral. There was a guy there that did the funeral, and he gave me one of the keys to the kingdom during the funeral service. He said, you know, a lot of people would say Clifford's death is God's will, and he said, I don't believe that, and I sat right up in the pew. He said, I believe God created human beings, gave them a free will. Some of those people chose to do this act, and now it's God's will. And I thought, you mean God didn't kill my dad to make him an angel or to punish me? No, another human being did. Man, it was like the weight of the world fell off my shoulders. Because you see, it was always, if there's God, why are there starving children in the world? It's real simple. We don't feed them and want to blame God. Why is cancer rampant? We pollute everything we touch and want to blame God. It's our responsibility. So maybe that God that I made up might just work. Maybe. Shortly after that, I, I went to work and God talked to me. Now, you've got to be careful when God talks to you. I've got a few other friends God talked to. They aren't going to be out for some time. <laughs> but God talked to me that day and he said, Ed, go out to California, get into show business. I looked at my resume, and it made perfect sense to me. So I went out to where all-stars get their start, Anaheim, California. I got a job at Disneyland. I was goofy. Little did they know how well I fit the role at that point. But I'll tell you the reason I went out there. When I got sober, people in AA told me to reclaim my dreams. And I thought, no, you don't want this guy to reclaim dreams, because I had some good dreams, man. You know, I, I in school, that's where I did my best dreaming. <laughs> and I can remember being on the corner of 6th and LeClaire with my little hand-me-down pants and wrap-around belt and hair sticking straight up and dirt rings around my neck and thinking, man, one of these days I'm going to travel all over the world and meet famous people. It's going to be cool. And I told somebody in, that, in my neighborhood that once, and they laughed at me, so I thought, well, it's probably stupid. So when they said that to me in AA, I thought, well, Okay. This would be a way to prove you wrong. So I went out to California. Now, I never started that job at Disneyland, and I'll tell you why. I happened to go up to a meeting in West L.A., and I walked into a meeting of enthusiasm about being sober, and I'd never seen that before. I was used to sitting in meetings, and you stand Fred up once a year, flipping the set him back down. <laughs> it's just so good being sober. <laughs> and you know, that's wonderful. I'm not putting that down, but that ain't for me. And it is for a lot of people, and I'm excited for them. But it wasn't for me. And I walked into this group, and people were doing things. They were shaking hands. They were introducing people. They were, going, they were moving people. They were, they were about living. And you see, I was thinking about dying. 24 hours a day, I was going to meetings and thinking, man, that bridge abutment looks good. At least I'll die sober. Nothing in my system. I was stark raving sober I went up there the next week and this guy walked by me and he'd been there the week before And I said excuse me would you be my sponsor he said no I kind of knew the A&A rules you know if you ask him they had to say yeah and he said anybody I sponsor has to look up to me ha 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 I thought oh good tall jokes this is what I need <laughs> this will help my self-esteem you know but, hmm Oh, we won't even go there tonight. That's a whole talk all by itself. (laughs) Then he stuck out his hand. He said, if you agree to do a few things, I'll be happy to be your sponsor. And he stuck out his hand. He said, my name's Clancy. And uh, I am forever grateful that I didn't hear some of the crap that goes on around about him. I'll tell you why. It's very simple. I would have believed you and died. I would have. I would have believed you and died. It's very important what we say and the example we set and what we do. I would have believed you and died. And I walked into a guy who looked me right into my eyes and saw that I was stark raving sober. And I was, uh, (laughs) I moved into his garage. And there I wrote an inventory. And I wrote for four days and four nights on that inventory. Because he told me I had to start all over, you know. And I thought, well, I've already been through the steps. And he said, well, you're living in my garage, so obviously you missed something slick. (laughs) (laughs) And I wrote for four days and four nights, and I wrote that inventory, and I went in, I finished it, and I went into the house to have a cup of coffee with Charlotte Clancy's wife to celebrate, and I come back out to the garage, and at that time, he had a goat named Alfred. And Alfred was just finishing off the last page. (laughs) True story. And I went into the house, I said, Charlotte, that goat ate my inventory. She said, oh, my God, I hope you don't get the runs. (laughs) And I thought, typical Al-Anon answer for you there. (laughs) And, of course, Clancy came home, and I said, Clancy, that goat ate my inventory. He said, bet you found that hard to swallow. (laughs) (laughs) And then, honest to God, four days later, the goat died. Some sort of bowel (laughs) obstruction. (laughs) But I remember staying in that garage, and I remember Keith coming there, and that's where I met Keith, and you're in for a treat there. You've got some wonderful speakers coming up. You're going to be blessed. Lives are going to change this weekend, not just for a day or two. For always. I met Keith and I lived in that garage and Clancy insisted that I do better than I think I could do because remember I always call it the 299 to 1 room with 300 people 299 said I'm great the 1 says I was still hung up with the ones," and I had to learn to look to the 299 in all my life people uh, were kind and loving to me I just assumed they'll look at the pain look at the discomfort and focus on that because without pain and discomfort I don't know how to live And that's why the steps work perfectly for me. Because the steps in the Alcoholics Anonymous have taught me how to live happy, joyous, and free, just as the book says. You know, one day it dawned on me, that's just not a nice little saying that's in that book. That's really what they expect. And I thought, you know, if I'm not getting that, then I'm doing something wrong. So I recommit. So I recommit. And I started all over with God, because I'd been professing that God I told you about. And I remember my first honest prayer, and it was a real simple one. It said, God, I don't know if you're there or not. sure hope so. First time in my life I'd ever been honest about God. See, it was always easier to say, oh, yes, I believe. Okay. Didn't want to. Wanted to. Couldn't. And you've got to start where you're at here in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, when I was five years sober, I wanted to act like I was ten years sober. When I was ten years sober, I wanted to act like, you know how long it takes to be act five years sober? About five years. <laughs> ten years sober, add another five. I always wanted to be a quick study, and I miss living today because I was looking for what I was going to get tomorrow and missing all I was given today. All of the 299s. I remember I was going to talk in a meeting in Pasadena, California, and uh, right before I went to that meeting, I thought, ooh, Pasadena, wealthy area, I might hook up with a job, I might. And I caught myself, and I got down on my knees, and I said the very same prayer I said in the hotel before I came down here. I said, God, let me just share the miracle you've performed in my life through Alcoholics Anonymous. Save me from my own nonsense, and I don't want a thing from any of these people. And I went and I gave my talk. Guy afterwards come up to me and said, this makes no sense to me, We I'll offer you a job. I said, it makes perfect sense to me. Go ahead. <laughs> He said, uh, have you ever been to Taiwan? I said, no. He said, have you ever been in show business management? No. I said, do you speak Taiwanese? I said, no. He said, be in my office Monday morning. <laughs> Suit up and show up. Monday morning I showed up. Thursday I was lifting out of LAX on China Airlines. I was going to Taipei, Taiwan. I was the new soon-to-be vice president of America on ice. I had a cast of 62 ice skaters. I was going to Taipei to negotiate with the Taiwanese government build the ice rink and uh, the costumes and everything else and designer Bill Campbell and I would be flying back and forth to Hong Kong to design those costumes, how was your week? (laughs) Now I'll tell you what's amazing So I showed up for the interview. I didn't say you only got an eighth grade education, Ed, and you're not really bright anyway. You're a loser, Ed, you've always been. You're going to be dead by the time you're 21, Ed. None of that. You taught me to suit up and show up. The toughest thing we have to do sober is to walk toward the goodness rather than stay in the muck. And a lot of us get offers for goodness and go, Oh no thanks. <laughs> and I showed up for the interview. And I remember I got on that got off that plane and got off the plane in Taiwan and everybody's this tall.
1: <laughs>
0: and I'm looking at them and they're looking at me, you know I know it's just a matter of time before they pull up that rope and tie me down. I, And I remember uh, walking out of that airport and getting into my Mercedes limousine and going up to uh, the President hotel that was owned by Madame Shang Kai-shek and going to my seven-room suite. And I had the right to be there, because I'm one of God's kids. And that's what she told me. And it wasn't about ego. It wasn't about ode to me. It was a gift that I appreciated. And I was there for a few months and I, I was there, uh, we went to Kaohsiung and a guy walked by me one day and said, you know, you'd be an excellent manager for the Harlem Globetrotters and i went, <coughs> <laughs> and I got home, back home to Los Angeles and uh, was home for a few months and the Harlem Globetrotters called me up and said, Mr. Muton, we've heard wonderful things about you, can you come and talk to us? So much for my five-year plan, huh? So much for controlling and mapping out my destiny, would have missed it all. God's got a better plan one day at a time. I suited up and I showed up for that interview. And all of a sudden I'm in New York City, Madison Square Gardens. And I'm on the bus with Metal Ark Lemon and Curly Neal. I got every major credit card in the world and $10,000 cash. And I think about a little kid on 6th and LeClair in Davenport, Iowa, who was wearing hand-me-downs, wraparound belts, hair sticking straight up and dirt rings around his neck because he liked to play hard. And he dared to dream that one day I'm going to go all over the world and I'm going to meet famous people. And you dared to tell me you can do that. And I dared to believe you. And I dared to believe you. And I went all over the world. And I had a great time. I went to London, England, met the daughter of the Turkish ambassador. She was Muslim, beautiful, wealthy. I thought, our backgrounds are a lot alike. (laughs) so we got married.
1: <laughs>
0: I didn't say all judgment had returned. <laughs> and uh, Keith remembers I know, and she's a wonderful woman, but we should have never gotten married and I knew that and I did it anyway. And I think she did too. And we have three children and what a blessing they are. But I keep hearing, well, at least we got the children. No, we got the children, that's a gift, but we should have never been married. And I don't say that to put her down or put me down. I wasn't a good partner at that time. I had no idea how to be of love and service in my own home. You know, we hear all the times, A.A.'s the toughest, at home's the toughest place to work. And no, it really isn't. That's just the last place we try. <laughs> Think about it. Come to meetings, live and let live, day to time, good to see you. Oh, you poke me in the eye, doggone you.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: we go home, give me the salt. What are you doing? thats That is that. Uh... Our actions speak so loud they can't hear a word we say and that's what I try to live by today everybody I sponsor everywhere I go I said hold me accountable my sponsor who I still have and very active with holds me accountable because uh, I want to be here tomorrow but most of all I want to be here today in 1988 I made some decisions based on self that cost me everything I owned everything I had my little apartment in Burbank Studios drive my little yellow Mercedes (laughs) <laughs> Clancy told me to go down and get a little import, so I did. <laughs> well, a 450 Mercedes seemed to fit the bill for that little import. And, you know, if you don't pay for them, they come and get them. It's doggone this thing. <laughs> that isn't going to work into my story well, you know, but they didn't care. And uh, I'll tell you what I found out of that. That was really painful because what had happened to me without me even knowing it is who I became uh, became more important and more of a god to me than my god, and I didn't even know it. It came in the back door, and I'm real grateful that I lost everything, because I think uh, I needed to understand that. And I also need to tell you that that, uh, you know, since I've been sober, uh, my father was murdered, uh, brother's been uh, come here, got sober three years. I buried him at 36 when he chose to drink again. I've been married and divorced. I've lost everything I've owned a couple times. Uh, buried my mother of cancer. Uh, Sister-in-law committed suicide, brother-in-law committed suicide, another brother-in-law put a gun to his head and he was a vegetable for two years and then died. This program works. There's no reason to go out there and have to figure it out. You can figure it out right here. As long as you got a sponsor and you stay committed and you do what you're asked to do. This program works. For the first time in my life, I couldn't get anything going. I used to be able to always get something, and I couldn't. And I told Clancy, I'm moving back to Iowa, and he didn't think it was that great idea, but he let me go, kind of you <laughs> know, <laughs> no, he really didn't. He, he, he has always been, uh, Clancy is, is uh, uh, Clancy is why I'm alive today, and uh, because of his understanding of Alcoholics Anonymous. And Clancy is the reason I have a God today, because of my love and loyalty that I learned with him that I could pass on to a God of my understanding. And I'll never be able to repay that. I came back to Iowa, and I started a place uh, for uh, uh, people who were sober and young to live. It wasn't a halfway house. It wasn't a treatment center. There was just a lot of people trying to stay sober that were homeless. And I came back to the Quad Cities, and all these houses were boarded up. And I made a rule that I couldn't criticize anything I was, unless I was doing my part to correct it. Whew, that's a tough one. But at least i wasn't the hypocrite i used to be so i saw that and I, I caught myself criticizing it so i opened this place and it was the first selfless thing i'd ever done and i loved that place it was called the lighthouse and i stuck around and i started all over i cracked open that book and really you know uh, read uh, if you're an old timer in AA and you're getting your butt kicked emotionally and you're afraid to tell somebody at meetings because you might look bad uh, Go to Language of the Heart, 235 or 236, Emotional Sobriety. It's a wonderful article written by Bill Wilson on depression and oldsters and AA and dependency. might save your life like it did mine, but I read that part in the book about where I was reborn. You know, I'd never been reborn. I always kept on to my favorite stuff, and I decided just to give it all up and do the best I can. And I lived on East 6th Street when I went back there. I lived in an old, run-down, boarded-up house that somebody let me pry the boards off of and get the electric on and uh, live there, and I got to start fresh and clean. And I did that for a few years, and then I thought, well, better get back to work here. And I started going to work, and I, I decided to quit smoking. I was up to three and a half, four packs a day, not much. <laughs> and then one day I went, <coughs> possibly this isn't good for you. So I quit smoking. And, uh, you know, I was pretty <laughs> pleased about that, and uh, uh, I went to the doctor, and the doctor said, I want you to get some shoes and go out there run, Ed. And I said, okay. So I got the shoes, and I did the stretching, and went out and broke my leg. So I'm sitting there one day with my uh, foot up, and it was a stress fracture in this leg, and it was uh, six weeks I had to have my leg up. And I'm kind of taking my inventory, and it's like in the early 90s, 91, 92, and I'm thinking, well, you know, things are coming along. Things are going pretty good. And then God said, what about education, Ed? And I did what all of us do.
1: La, 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 (laughs)
0: la. Doesn't help, he'll call again. What about education? La, 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 la. But if you've been around a while, you know when you get that clear message, you do one thing, you get your crutches and you go over to the university. And I hobble in there and said, I'd like to go to school, and they say, how many credits do you have? And I said, have bad credits. What's that got to do with anything? (laughs) And they laughed like you did but I shared with them a gift that you would given me and please God, I never forget it. I was able to say, you don't understand. I don't know how to go to school. I'm not sure if I'm part, smart enough to pass a class, but I'd certainly like to try. Would you help me? And they looked me right in the eye and said, we'd be happy to. And within two weeks, I'm doing university studies. That's kind of cute when I never paid any attention when I was a kid, so I had to learn to study. I had to really learn to read and comprehend. It was great. And I went to school full-time, worked full-time, kept all my commitments in AA. I'm the wrong one to say, oh, I just don't have the time. You know something? If you want to do it, God will make the time. He gives me 35-hour days, if that's what I need. He gives them to me. And I started going to school, and then there was one weekend where a guy said, uh, he he invited me on this weekend retreat, and I went on that weekend retreat, and it was a Christian retreat, and uh, I had a spiritual awakening. Hadn't planned on that either. But it changed my heart and it changed my mind in a moment's flash. Very similar to what Bill writes about that uh, mountaintop experience. I'm just not articulate enough to explain it to you. Someday maybe I can. But God said, I need you to work for me. And I said, yes, sir. And I left that retreat and I went into the ministry. In three weeks I had a church and was doing sermons and conducting services. Because you see, I don't know how small your God is, but mine's a big one. He can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. And I started going to there, and I said, what do you need me to do? And they said, well, you've got to get your B.A. And I thought, okay. And then they said, you've got to get this 96-hour master's degree. And I said, okay. And I did all that, one day at a time. And I'll never forget the first time I got a call that one of my parishioners was dying, a guy named Harold. Harold was one of the nicest men I've ever known in my life. He was a farmer, hard-working guy. He was one of those guys that if something was wrong, he'd take care of it quietly. You'd never hear about it. And I got a call, and uh, Harold had radical stomach cancer, and asked to see me. He just got the diagnosis, and I went there to see him. And he, uh, I walked in. I'm doing on-the-job training with this pastor thing. I thought, well, you probably should pray. And I thought, well, I don't feel like that. So I sat down and talked with him for a while. And Harold had a big bay window, as they do down there in Iowa a lot. He kept looking out, and I realized Harold had a big, beautiful yard that he always kept well manicured. And I said, Harold, can I mow your lawn? And he turned to me and said, would you do that, Pastor Ed? And I said, you bet. So for the next four months, on Monday, for about four hours, I mowed Harold's lawn, some of the best ministry I've ever done. Where do you think I learned that, seminary? Learned it right here. Some of the most godly things we can do is wash your dish, give somebody a ride, just be there, standing right there just in case they need you. And I remember the last day I mowed that lawn, I went in and said, Harold, you feel like praying? He said, I sure do, Pastor Ed. And we said a good prayer. And I ended the prayer with, God bless you, Harold. And he said, oh, no, no, God bless you, Pastor Ed, because you see, Harold was a giver. And two hours later, he died. I had come from a place in life you had brought me and taught me to come from a place in life where nobody wanted to be around me, to people were saying, I want to see your eyes, the last thing I ever see on this earth, I'm a rich man. I wouldn't take anything for that. And I got appointed to a bigger church, a 1,200-member church, and we were going along, and I've always remained active in AA. Part of my ministry was one Sunday a month I go and speak at conventions and that was all fine, and, and things were really good. I've had a, a wonderful run here of about eight, nine years, and, and uh, last year they came to me and said, you know, we want you to quit talking in AA. And I said, uh, why is that? Well, we want you here at the church. The people love you here at the church, and they want you all the time here. And I said, well, unfortunately, I can't do that. So out of the blue, I had to change a career that I'd never been happier in. And I love those people. You know, sometimes we always think AA people are good people. There's a lot of wonderful people in AA, but there's a lot of wonderful people in the world. And I knew a lot of them were at my church. I said goodbye to them in June, and I started a new church. And uh, the only reason I tell you that is because it's important to tell you what I'm doing today. About two years ago, I was preaching on a Saturday evening, and I was preaching on forgiveness. And right in the middle of my sermon, because I always try to give them heaven instead of hell, try not to shake my finger and not have thin blue lips. (laughs) And uh, every once in a while, though, I can... And I'm preaching away on forgiveness, and all of a sudden, I I, I stopped, And I said, you know, I need to stop here, and I need to share something with you. I've never forgiven the guys who have killed my father, so I really can't preach on this. But I make this covenant that I'll go, and I'll seek him out, and I'll forgive him. Then I can preach on this because one thing my sponsor taught me and one thing you taught me is examples speak so loud you can't hear a word we say and I hate hypocrisy as God would have it two and a half weeks later one of the guys had an appeal and the sentence was overturned and man it made news everywhere and they came to see me all the press I'm very well known and loved in my hometown and that, that's by God's grace and Alcoholics Anonymous believe me and the press came and they had cameras everywhere and they said well you know, the, they just overturned his sentence. They said, release him or uh, uh, retry him right now. And it's been 27 and a half years. What do you think should happen? I said, it's time to forgive and forget. And they said, well, he's been in prison 27 and a half years. He's been in there since he was 17. He doesn't know how to work. He doesn't know what's he going to do. And I said, he can come live with me if he wants. <clears throat> they didn't get that. You get it. You invited me into your home. Who am I not to do the same? You see, he didn't do anything I hadn't been capable of at one time or another. Who am I? And that story literally went around the world. I got a call from Oprah Show. I got a call from 48 Hours. I got a call from 2020. People did news. It was for LA Times front page stuff, and it was New York Times, and it went all over the world. And I just want to tell them, No, it's, it has to do with step eight and nine. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't tell <laughs> And as God would have it, a few weeks later, I, uh, I was, found myself walking down Fort Madison Penitentiary. Heard my feet shuffling on that uh, sand on the cement. I'm in prayer, and I'm going to meet a guy named Sherman White. Last time I'd seen Sherman White, I was sitting across from him in the courtroom, thinking, if you give me five minutes with him, we won't need a trial. In fact, bring all five of them in. We won't need a trial. And now I'm going to see him again. And I went into that cell, and I stuck out my hand, and I said, My name's Reverend Ed Mutum, and I'm here to tell you that God loves you, and I love you, and I forgive you, and if there's anything in my life that can ever make your life better, let me give it to you. And he looked into my eyes, and I believe he saw what I saw in those old-timers' eyes. I was telling him the truth. There was no con here. We talked for two and a half hours. He's cried in my arms. He's told me things he thought he could never tell anybody, just like you did for me. A year ago, November, I was, or last November, I guess it was, I got a call from the Iowa State Corrections Facility, and they said, uh, Sherman's being released, and the governor says he'll only be released to you. Imagine that. and I went up and I got to pick up my friend and load him in the car and I remember I said we're going to get something to eat now and I said this woman's going to ask you a lot of questions she's not harassing you it's just the way we do things she said, She what do you mean I said well how do you like your eggs how many what kind of toast because you know he's used to a child line for 30 years you got to think about these things we went in and he ordered and said man that is kind of harassing isn't it <laughs> and he uh we went outside that restaurant, and there was a beautiful little pond right here at the right. And he said, uh, Reverend Ed, can I stop for a minute and look at this pond? And I said, sure you could. And I realized he hadn't been able to do that in 29 and a half years. We get to do it every single day, stop and look and enjoy if we're looking for the 299s. I got to take him to the store, find out what size he was, because he didn't know. All he knew was prison issue. I got to take him to look for work and get him a job. He got him the job because he was honest with the people. He said, what do I tell him? And I said, you tell him you were involved in something that was just horrible, and it broke your heart, and you've done 30 years for it, and you're trying to start new, and you just love an opportunity to do that. And that's what he did. And he was out about three months, and he violated. And it was a stupid little violation, but when you're a convicted murderer, what I didn't tell you is, uh, They had decided to retry him again. And I went down and talked to the county attorney, a guy named Bill Davis. And I asked him to give my friend some mercy. Because that's what I beg for now, for me and for you and for all of them. All of us that made it. And he said, Ed, this guy's conning you. I said, he don't even know I'm here. How can that be a con? And by God's grace and what you taught me to be and how you taught me to be, he listened. And he reduced his sentence so he could come home. Because by Iowa law, if you're with somebody in the commit of a felony and they have a gun, you're guilty of first-degree murder. He reoffended and he went back and people came to me and said, well, I guess you're not going to be talking to him again. I said, oh, yes, I am. They didn't throw me out of AA when I goofed up. My sponsor gave me good information, said, Eddie, you'll never get drunk for doing things wrong, but you'll get drunk if you start defending them. Boy, write that one down. Because you're going to do things wrong, especially if you try it. And I don't know what's going to happen to my friend Sherman. And I was up talking at a place in Des Moines uh, about three months ago, and or excuse me, about six. Uh, it was right before Christmas last year. And uh, they said, "Do I have any regrets about uh, meeting Sherman?" And I said, "No, no. The only regret I have is I've never been able to get a hold of the trigger man. And because when he went to prison, he killed two more people, and they've got him put back. So far, you can't see." And I said, my only regret is I'd like to write him a letter. And the woman who was heading the committee said, I've been writing to him for 20 years. He'll have you his address when you get home on your email. And when I got home, there was his email, and I wrote him a letter, and I said, Glenn, my name's Reverend Ed Mutum. I'm the son of Clifford Mutum. I said, I'm here to tell you that I love you and God loves you. And if there's anything I can do to make your life better, let me do it, and I forgive you. And I didn't hear from him for quite a while. I got a letter back Christmas Eve last year, getting ready for services. And it was a long letter, but what it said was he apologized for not writing sooner, but he just couldn't believe I'd write to him. And he said to me, I don't know that you could ever help me in any way. He said, I've done. And I told him I was sorry for the decisions he'd made, and he must feel horrible about it. And he said to me, uh, I've done too many things wrong. There's no way you can help me that I know of, But the very fact that you said you would means more to me than you'll ever know. And then about three months ago, he called and asked for my help. You see, his mom's dying. And he'd like to see his mom before she dies. If there's any way to do it, God can do it. So we're going to try to get that to happen. What you've taught me in Alcoholics Anonymous is to add to this world. I want to spend my time giving everything I got because God knows I spent enough years taking even after sober lying and common and crap. My prayer when I come to these things that I leave a very part of my soul here because that's all I got and my prayers that uh, you can find in this deal what I found if you found more that you'll share it with me. Happy, joyous, and free. I dare you to be. Thank you.